And now we're over to hear our reading, which is taken from Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 1 to 24. And Jill Chelsky is going to give our reading for us. Thank you, Jill. The reading today is from Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 1 through to 25. And I'm reading from the New International Version. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then he said, Here I am, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifices of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he is made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Thanks be to God for his word. The last words that people utter on their deathbeds are often seen as carrying great significance. So, for example, the last words of 
Lord Palmerston on the on in 1865, a former prime minister. His last words were this. He turned to his doctor and said, "Die, my dear doctor. Ha! That's the last thing I shall do." While the beloved husband of uh, Queen Victoria said on his deathbed, Prince Albert in 1861, he said, "I have had wealth, rank, and power." But if these were all I had, how wretched I shall be. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. While it was the last words of that famous carpenter from Nazareth, who was hung brutally upon an ugly wooden cross, who cried out above the crowd, It is finished. It is finished. And that's the question for us today. Just what is finished? What was Jesus crying these words from the cross for? What was he trying to convey to us and to all humanity? It is finished. And as we approach Easter, we're beginning today a mini-series looking just at the cross of Jesus from various angles. What does the cross mean? Why is it so central? to our understanding of our faith, of being a Christian. And today we're going to look at the cross from the aspect or the angle of sacrifice. And it's perhaps this angle that shows us both the paradox of, that shows us the paradox of the crucifixion in terms of the ugly nature of that form of execution and yet the glorification of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It shows us both the horror of sin and the grace of God displayed in that one single act upon the cross. And we to understand it fully have got to really under, get into the pages of the Old Testament and understand just what the sacrificial scheme and system was all about. Why was it going on in the pages of the Old Testament? What purpose did it serve? And what did Jesus achieve for us by dying upon that cross? You see, we've got to understand exactly what the Old Testament says. Because we are New, Christ we are New Testament people. We're people who are post-resurrection. We're people who, when we look at the cross, see it from Easter Sunday and not from Good Friday. It's very hard to see it from the angle of those disciples who stood around at the foot of the cross, having witnessed the death of the Messiah the death of the King of Kings, the death of their Saviour, the death of their hope, the death of their joys. It's very hard for us as post-Easter Christians to really understand exactly their angle at the foot of the cross. You see, the cross speaks of pain and horror, yet it also beams light into the darkness of death and brings and speaks about grace and forgiveness. And this aspect of the cross could be seen when we actually understand what was happening upon the cross and begin to see Jesus not just as the Messiah, as the Saviour, but also as the sacrificial lamb. The sacrificial lamb. That he was laid upon that cross for us. 
And we can see this for the eyes of John the Baptist, who when he first saw Jesus walking towards him, told everyone and proclaimed to everyone in John 1 verse 29, he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is seen in the Bible and in the New Testament and the Old Testament as the Lamb of God. The cross for him was much more than two pieces of wood nailed together. The cross was an altar. The wood served as a stone table. The nails were the altar horns. And on this strange altar, his blood was spilt. It was shed and poured out for you and for me. So it would help us this morning if we would take a little time to consider how this cross became an altar. But to do that, we must glance back from the pages of the New Testament to the pages of the Old. And in the pages of the Old, we begin to see that there were five normal stages involved in the act of sacrifice. Five stages in sacrifice. And the first was that of bringing near. Bringing near. To make a sacrifice, the worshipper must first draw near to God. And this may seem like too obvious a statement to make. It's a bit like coming to church. Why mention it? It's not really part of our worship. It's just the journey to worship. It's just the, the transition from home to worship. But draw near was of great importance in the Hebrew culture because it showed a certain mindset. It was important. You didn't simply arrive at worship. This is an important principle for us to learn on Sundays or when we do our quiet time. We don't simply arrive at worship. You must prepare for worship. If one minute you're watching um, the TV and next minute you switch that off and go across to the service, don't expect your spirit to be fully engaged with the worship you're about to see and experience because you haven't prepared. You haven't drawn near. You just switch to switch. And our mind and our spirit doesn't work like that. The Hebrew people understood this. To worship required drawing near. It required preparation. It was an intention to worship God. The desire for forgiveness, the desire for restored relationship. That was all part of the drawing near process. In fact, it was so importantly part of the sacrificial purpose and pro process that to draw near became a Hebrew technical expression that when it's mentioned to draw near, it literally means to sacrifice. It became uh, a, a, an expression that meant um, something else. It took, when you spoke, when a Hebrew spoke of drawing near, another Hebrew would understand they meant to sacrifice. It became a technical expression in this way. And there's good reason for this because you could only approach the altar, if you'd already prepared for sacrifice and you'd done work for the sacrifice, because a key principle of sacrifice is it always had to cost the worshipper. It always had to cost the worshipper. This is something else we've lost in our modern form of worship. So often people speak about worshippers feeling that, that, that they're being blessed by the worship. It's about blessing them and not blessing God. They, are, they see themselves as the recipient of the worship, when in reality, in worship, we are giving ourselves to God. It's not about you and me. People complain on Sunday sometimes that the service has been too long. So what? It's a sacrifice of worship. It's not about how long the service is. It's about what depth you give. That's the whole concept of worship. Again, unfortunately, in the 21st century, we reverse so many things and we've become the focus of our own universes. 
The modern idol that's the chief distraction from the true worship of God is you and me. Our rights, you know, our blessing, it's about me. It's not about you. And some of our worship songs talk about this, the idea of getting back to worship. It's not about me, it's all about you. And the Hebrew people understood this because to draw near meant they prepared themselves for worship and they recognised that worship itself was sacrificial. We go to give, we don't go to receive. We go to give to God his glory and to bring ourselves into the presence of God. And that requires preparation. And the first thing preparation required was to use an animal of approved kind. You couldn't just use any animal in worship and in sacrifice. You had to use animals that were deemed to be clean. And there are animals that you can read about in the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament that were deemed to be unclean. Animals with a cloven hoof, for example, were deemed to be unclean. A pig, obviously, uh, for an Israeli, would be deemed as an unclean animal. So it had to be an oxen, a goat, a sheep or a pigeon. These were clean animals. So it had to be the preparation of preparing the right kind of animal and not just the right kind of animal, but the right, not the right, just the right kind of animal, but the right condition of animal, because that animal had to be perfect without any blemish. Leviticus 22 says this, it must be without defect or blemish to be acceptable. Do not offer to the Lord the blind, the injured or the maimed, or anything with warts or festering or running sores. Do not place any of these on the altar as an offering made to the Lord by fire. The animal had to be perfect without blemish. So you had to prepare. You had to first of all find the right kind of animal and make sure that animal was the right condition. It was perfect. You couldn't just simply throw away an animal that was due to slaughter simply because it was a poor animal. You had to give the best. Perfect and unblemished. An animal in the best of health and condition that could not be maimed or deformed. It had to be something that cost the worshipper. This is a key part of the sacrificial process and the worshiping process and it's something we've got to get back to people in the modern day and age worship is not about you it's not about me it's about god it costs us that's what's important in worship it costs us and we give to god his glory so the worship and the sacrifice may always cost the worshipper something. In fact, David writes this about this in 2 Samuel 2. He says this, he says, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my burnt offerings that cost me nothing. He realised that to give to God an offering that costs you nothing is no offering at all. It's an insult. It's like trying to give to a friend a present that was a present he gave to you two or three years before. It's cost them nothing and they just want to get rid of it. It's not really trying to bless the other person. It's simply trying to get rid of something, you know, do a duty, fulfill a role. David said, I will not give to God an offering or a sacrifice that costs me nothing. To approach God, to draw near, must cost the worshipper. But having drawn near to God then, the worshipper had to put his hands on the head of the animal. That's the second principle of the sacrifice, laying the laying on of hands. Leviticus 1 verse 4 says this. He is to take or he is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. And it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. 
So what was happening then with the laying on of hands? What was happening in the situation of the worshipper or the priest laying his hands upon the animal? Well, the first thing was an act of identification. Quite literally in the Hebrew language, it doesn't mean simply just to lay a hand on in a gentle way. It meant to lean upon the animal. You literally would lay your hands and you'd lean into the animal. Um, I went to see um, someone the other day who's got a dog and, and the dog came up to me and, and I was stroking it and the dog came across to me and leant their head upon my leg and leant into my head. It was comforting and in fact um, there's something that greyhounds are renowned for doing as well but they kind of lean into people. You know it's a kind of identification with the person and we, um, the, the worshipper had to lean into the sacrifice, sacrificial animal, to identify with, with it. But also, in that act of identification, it was a transferal. It was seen as a transferal of things. An act, a symbolic act of a transferal of sins. And we see this, in fact, in the, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew concept of the scapegoat. The scapegoat. And in the Old Testament, we see that at certain times of the year, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, two goats, two Twin goats were taken. One was to become a sacrifice that was placed upon the altar. And then the other twin, the live goat, was taken. And that goat wasn't slaughtered. But they had a, a crimson ribbon woven around, around their, their horns. And that goat literally was laid upon with the hands of the priest on this occasion. And the priest would pray a prayer and recite over this scapegoat the sins of the people. They would lay their hands upon them and say over that goat the sins of the people and then that goat would be taken outside the city and released into the wilderness. There's a beautiful picture painted by the pre-Raphaelite pre artist Holman Hunt, famous for the uh, stand-up for door and knock picture. This is another picture by this artist and it's of the scapegoat here cast out into the wilderness. And you can see this is actually on the edge of the Dead Sea. You can see all the salt in the ground and the skeletons of other scapegoats that have died in those salty, horrible conditions. And you can see the goat struggling on the edge of the, the salty earth with the crimson ribbon tied around their horns, carrying the sins of the people into the wilderness. This is written about in Leviticus chapter 16, where it says, Then Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and sending them away into the wilderness by means of someone designated for the task. The goat shall bear on itself all the iniquities to a barren region and the goat shall be set free in the wilderness. By laying their hands upon the goat, they were transferring the sins from themselves to the goat itself. And this is exactly what's said in the Bible in Leviticus 1 verse 4. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. So the laying on of hands was to transfer from the individual to the animal their sins. And then, of course, there was a killing of the animal. And this, perhaps, is the one of the most difficult things for us to understand in the 21st century. Because we live in a, in a vacuum-packed world, don't we? 
You know, if you want to get a, a chicken, you don't go down to a farmer and take a live chicken and, and kill it. Normally you buy it from Sainsbury's or Aldi's or wherever, and it comes pre-wrapped, pre-killed, pre-plucked, prepared. Even the innards are taken out and it's all there for you. All the hardened, distasteful and unpleasant aspects of killing are dealt, dealt with. They're done for you. And that's how we do our food nowadays. But 2,000 years ago, that wasn't the way. There wasn't refrigeration. There wasn't butchers in the same ways we have butchers nowadays. In the average household, you'd learnt how to kill food that you're going to take. And if it couldn't be refrigerated, it had to be sorted and kept and prepared. But you were the person who had to deal with it. And this was a key part of the worship. Because the worshipper had to kill the animal. It had to wring the neck of the pigeon or the goat. Or the sheep. And it brought home to the person just how terrible sin was. How God regarded sin as something that was barbaric. You know, we think of sin often, we, we can lighten it and see it as not very not uh, justify it and make it as if it's not a uh, not a not a problem but god hears the cries and the weeping of everyone everyone who weeps because of the bad behavior and the evil and the sinfulness of other people every husband or wife who's walked out on their partner every child that's been abused everyone who's been sexually exploited everyone who's been lied to and betrayed Everyone who's been ignored, everyone who's been brought up in an unloving relationship, everyone who's been castigated or slandered, who's had people whispering lies and slanders about them behind their back. God hears their cries, every one of them. God doesn't think sin is light. We may laugh and joke about it, but God doesn't. And the Bible tells us in Romans that the the cost, the wage of sin is death. And that's why sacrifice was important. That's why the worshipper had to take something living and kill it in a sacrificial process. It reminded them of the ugly and gruesome nature of sin and that sin ultimately required death. And then it got worse because having run the neck of the pigeon or the sheep, then the blood had to be manipulated. The reason the blood is so important is because it symbolises life itself. It symbolises because the blood carries the oxygen to the brain. The blood is critical to life. And when blood is poured out, life leaves the body. As the blood leaves the body, life leaves the body. And so the ultimate symbol of death was a lot of blood poured out. And so the priest would take the blood and it would be sprinkled or poured out or splashed against the altar. It was manipulated in various ways. But again, that was symbolic of the death. It showed that death had taken place. It wasn't simply a pinprick of blood. It was a lot of blood. It showed that death had taken place. And lastly, the final act on the altar was the burning of the carcass. And in some of the sacrifices in the Old Testament, it was only the fat of the animal that was taken and was burnt and then the meat was consumed by the priests. Other times, the, the burnt offering, the reason it was called the burnt offering was the whole of the offering was burnt and consumed. Not just part of it, but all of it. And it had to be um, completely inc incarcerated in the flames, completely consumed by the flames, because it was seen that the smoke itself represented the sacrifice going to God. The smoke was seen as God's portion 
And as the smoke ascended heavenward, it was seen as God receiving that sacrifice from the worshipper. Leviticus talks about this in Leviticus chapter 1. It says, It is a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. So the whole idea of a smoke rising was that the smoke became in a pleasing aroma and showed the cost of the sacrifice of the worshipper. This was really important. The problem was is that for all the years that a sacrificial system took place in Jerusalem, when both the regular and the annual sacrifices took place on behalf of the people and on behalf of individuals, it didn't do what it claimed to do. It never achieved what it set out to achieve. You see, the sacrificial system was only part of a true worship of God. And the Bible makes it clear that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant with God, required obedience. In Exodus chapter 19, it says this, Now if you, God says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Just listen to that. God says to the people, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant. Now all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we are able to obey God sometimes. There's some things we find easier than others. But who, who has ever obeyed God fully? Who has ever never slipped up, never sinned, never been angry, never hurt someone, never done something wrong, either deliberately or subconsciously or um, unavoidably? How many of us can say we've fully obeyed God's word, God's commands to us? You see, as soon as you slip up, you become unperfect. Just one time you don't do it, you're unperfect. and You've got to sacrifice for that one time. But you can't sacrifice because you're not perfect. You're no longer an animal that's um, without blemish. Perhaps you could argue that, in fact, sacrifice is okay because once you slip up, you just need to sacrifice. And that's okay. You've, you've paid the price of sin. But the book of Hebrews, that Jewel very kindly read to us earlier on from Hebrews chapter 10, makes it quite clear that in fact the sacrifices themselves weren't meant to be efficacious, weren't meant to actually achieve, they are meant to demonstrate that it couldn't be achieved. It was impossible. Hebrews 10 verse 4 says this, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Let me read that again to you. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It just doesn't work. As a system, it is broken. As a system, it is fundamentally flawed. Like us, you can't deal with flaws by having a flawed system. It didn't work. And elsewhere, the writer of the Hebrew says this, the gifts of sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. It didn't work. The system was broken. And that is why Jesus came, so his body could be broken, to put it right and to put us right with God. Sin remained under the old system, and as did guilt. The Lord just proved how impossible the situation was, and just demonstrated that we couldn't make ourselves right with God. We needed intervention, and God himself provided that intervention. 
God came down. What's that wonderful verse, the most famous verse in all the Bible? And there's a reason it's the most famous is because it is key. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. But he gave his one and only son, but whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The system was broken. So who came to fix it? God came to fix it. He came down in the presence and being of his son, Jesus Christ. And he died for you and for me. He is the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist cried out in John chapter 1. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, forsakes away your sin and my sin. Jesus came to be that sacrifice. And we see as we come towards Easter, the passion narrative, those weeks and those days leading up to Good Friday. We see all the symbols and the parts of that fivefold process in the Old Testament of sacrifice. The first thing we see is bringing near or drawing near. Because Jesus, the sacrifice, drew near to Jerusalem. He approached Jerusalem like a worshipper approaching the altar. Luke 9 verse 51 says this, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He resolutely set out. The, the authorised version puts it like this. He set his face towards Jerusalem. I wonder if you've done things that aren't pleasant. I know when I used to be in the army and used to go away on tours, to be away from my family for six months, that's, that's really tough. Especially if you go into a dangerous place, a war zone. And you have to have resolution. You have to be determined. You have to set your face towards the task. If you don't, you won't do it. You'll end up finding a reason or you'll, you'll, you'll go AWOL or whatever. You've got to be determined. You say, I must do this. This is right. Sometimes we get up, don't we, on a morning and we're facing a day that we're not looking forward to. And if we don't set our face, we won't get out of bed. We won't throw our feet over the edge of the mattress. We will just lay there and pull the duvet around our ears and try to go back to sleep. It requires effort. In fact, this is prophesied in the, Old, in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 50. One of those prophecies about Jesus. Where the, where the prophet writes and says the words of Jesus. He says, because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. I've set my face like flint. And that prophecy in Isaiah chapter 50 is referring to Jesus, looking to Jerusalem, resolving to go forward with what he believed God had commanded he must do. A flint-like face, a face of rock-like resolve. Jesus didn't want to go and die. He didn't want to suffer upon the cross. He didn't choose that pain and that separation from God that caused him to cry out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who would? He set his feet, so he set his face like rock because of you and me, because it had to be done, because the sacrificial system did not work, because there was only one unblemished lamb that could die for the people, for humankind. And it was Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus approached the altar in obedience, as only he could die for you and for me, as the perfect Son of God. And so then there was the laying on of hands. 
And this time it wasn't one hand or two hands, it was many hands. It was the hands of the soldier, it was the hands of Pilate, it was the hands of the chief priests and, 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 and all, his, all his cronies. It was the hands of the people who shouted out, crucify him. It was the hands of the mockers, it was the hands of the scourgers, it was the hands that placed the, the crowny thorns upon his face. It was all those hands, and it was your hands, and it was my hands. Isaiah 50 verse 6 says this, The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. If you have iniquity, if you have sin in your life and have failed to live up and keep God's commands fully, then your hands were laid upon the perfect Son of God that day. And just as the worshipper was involved in the killing of the animal, we all were involved in the killing of Jesus. It was us who laid Jesus upon the cross. Because it's always the worshipper that kills the sacrifice. That was part of one of the stages in the Old Testament. Because the worshipper was killing the animal on behalf of themselves. And Jesus died on behalf of you and me. It was our hands, our footprints, sorry, our fingerprints upon Jesus that put him upon the cross. Don't blame that crowd 2,000 years ago. Don't have that cheap jibe. I wasn't there. <laughs> it wasn't me. Because he died for your sins. He died for you. It was you. And then there's the manipulation of the blood. The blood had to be poured out upon the altar. And so Jesus' body was torn. And his blood was poured out upon that cross from the wounds caused by the crown of thorns to those terrible carpenter's nails driven through his hands and through his feet, to the thrust of this Roman spear into his side. His blood flowed and anointed the ground beneath the cross. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Peter's saying that you are, your life was bought by the precious lamb of Jesus, a lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus had to die. There was no other perfect lamb. No other way to pay the price of sin. His blood was poured out for you and for me. That's why we have the service of communion, the Eucharistic rite, the communion service. Jesus said at the Last Supper in Mark chapter 14, he said this, this is, my, this is my blood of a new covenant, but it's poured out for many. His blood was deliberately poured out for you and for me. And then there was finally the burning on the altar. The idea of the burnt offering. And that meant that the sacrifice had to be totally given. And Jesus gave his all. He was totally given upon the cross. He experienced the full agonies of separation from God. Mark 15 verse 34 tells us he cried out. They cried their election, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? He gave all of himself for you. 
He gave all of himself for me. That's the God we serve and worship. You see, Jesus was not a mindless sleep, uh, sorry, a mindless sheep that was forcibly taken by a worshipper and was sacrificed. Jesus took himself to the cross. In Jesus, the act of sacrifice involves his will fully. He cried out in the agonies in the Garden of Gethsemane to God in that final prayer. He said, not my will, but yours. Jesus will to die for you and for me. And so the writer of the Hebrews says in the verse read earlier on tonight, today, Hebrews 10 verse 10. He says this, he says, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Jesus deliberately willed to give himself for you and for me. And by his will and by that sacrifice, we are made perfect. The sacrificial system is ended, completed. No longer has to happen because he died for you and for me. He willed to die for you. You see, Jesus is not just the lamb, he is the lion and the lamb. He is the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God. And upon the cross he cried out, It is finished, it is done. Done with the sacrificial system. The sacrifice is made, the way is opened. And now in Isaiah 53 we read the words and understand what the prophet Isaiah was saying in Isaiah 53. God says, Their sins and lawless acts I remember no more. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We are all like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And upon the cross you weren't simply hearing a lamb bleating. Upon the cross, when Jesus says it is finished, you hear the line of Judah roaring. You hear Christ saying, it is done. It is finished. It is complete. No other sacrifice could achieve this. It is finished. It is done. Believe in me and you are saved. The Bible tells us we all like sheep have gone astray. And God wants to bring us back into his flock so that we might follow him and live by his principles and bring the peace and joy that comes from knowing him. But we can't do it by ourselves. The good shepherd died for the sheep. He became the lamb of God. And now roars as the lion of Judah. It is finished. It is finished. It is done. This is our God, the Servant King.